let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. I'm David Breer, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, Jason Bates, Simon Taylor, and Aidan Davies, recording, as always, from Level 39 in London, the heart of Fintech. Before we get into the news, I want to share some updates about Fintech Insider. We've switched up the format of the show in season two, and want to give you a little bit more explanation of what we're doing. So every Monday now, we'll bring you Fintech Insider News, a show dedicated exclusively to the latest fintech and financial services headlines. On Wednesday, you can look forward to Fintech Insider Insights. We'll continue to bring on experts to discuss the latest and greatest and the biggest topics, things like digital banking, new business models, what we should be doing with APIs, and other areas of interest. On Fridays with Fintech Insider interviews, we'll continue to share the individual stories that are making the biggest impact in fintech and financial services. I'd also like to take a moment to welcome our new sponsors this year, LinkedIn and Financial Times. We're incredibly excited about these new partnerships and really how we take Fintech Insider to the next level. And now on to the news with our guests, Frankie Woodhead, Director of Commercial and Channels at Barclays, and Alessandro Hatamai, the Managing Partner at the Pacemakers. Enjoy the show. So let's get into it with the Fintech Insider news for this week. Joining us today, we have Frankie Woodhead, Director of Commercial Channels at Barclays. Say hey, Frankie. Hello, guys. And we have Alessandro Hatamai, Managing Partner at The Pacemakers. Say hello, Alessandro. Uh, hi, it's Hatami, actually, but yes, hello. How <laughs> long did we work together? And I clearly yes. got that one wrong. Yes, first yes. From the regulars, we've got Aiden. Say hey, Aiden. Hello. Simon. Hello, everybody. And Jason. Yo. So, kicking off with what's been happening in the news this week, we have uh, quite an interesting one first up in the Telegraph. This is Donald Trump plans New Deal for Britain, which sounds a bit sinister to start with, I have to say. But when you start digging into it, there's one particular piece which was quite fascinating about the idea of a passporting system for UK banks into the US. And actually, Pascal Bouvier, who is the venture partner of Santander Innoventures, wrote a Pretty interesting article on this, so let's hear from Pascal to start with. So I'm now talking to Pascal Bouvier. Pascal, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast, David. It's uh, always a pleasure. No problem. You're welcome. always welcome back. So uh, Pascal, you're currently, uh, obviously you're a, a long-time fintech investor and you're currently at uh, Santander Ventures. Uh, but the reason to actually have a, a, a conversation with you today is you wrote a pretty awesome article looking at a passporting system being considered between Theresa May and Donald Trump. So, well, this would allow and reduce the barriers between American and British banks. Um, fascinating. 
I, I guess, uh, you know, firstly, sort of holding our disbelief for a little while, what really could this mean in terms of the UK banking, US banking relationships? The context is uh, the Brexit vote. Uh, we still do not know whether we're, we are going to have a hard Brexit uh, or a soft Brexit, but that is going to have an impact on financial services in, uh, in general, fintech in particular, and obviously uh, how banks view uh, their approach, US banks view their approach to, uh, to the UK and, uh, and to Europe. And then the second part of that context is you know, President Trump's view on agreements uh, about uh, trade and, and commerce. Uh, his views are much more bilateral, i.e. Uh, shying away from uh, multilateral agreements and dealing one-to-one -one with uh, with countries. So there, there's an element of timing here where uh, he obviously wants to push and, and further that special relationship between the, uh, the, the U.S. and U.K. and seeing that there are you know, unknowns and question marks with regards to how the financial services industry in the U.K. will be uh, uh, taken care of or not uh, by the split with the uh, EU, uh, maybe seizing on that opportunity and, and stating, uh, you know, come and look at, uh, at the US way uh, and you'll have uh, a win-win for uh, US banks to continue to have uh, some type of easy access to the, uh, the UK and for the UK financial services sector uh, to do same in uh, in the US. You know, it might be, uh, there might be other unintended consequences, uh, i.e. putting uh, pressure on the uh, EU to uh, play nice, quote-unquote, uh, with the Brexit uh, negotiations. But you know, that's, it is indeed quite uh, fascinating. It's easy to have trade negotiations on products and tangible uh, trade and commerce. It's uh, not that easy at all to have uh, trade agreements on services, and you know the financial services uh, industry falls in that, that category. So for uh, Trump and May to start thinking about uh, facilitating exchange of services in our industry at that level is uh, quite interesting indeed. I agree. I think it is uh, fascinating to see how this one unfolds. I, I have to say, I do wonder, um, you know, there's there's an obvious benefit here potentially to um, the uh, challenger banks that are being established in the, the UK. Obviously, I'm sure there are lots of, uh, you know, the, the sort of atoms and monzos and tandems of this world who are probably licking their lips at the potential of uh, opening up of that market and actually the, what that will mean in terms of their, their particular valuations. But I guess, you know, in the US market, we've seen um, the likes of Simple and Moven um, sort of be established within the US but without really the success that um, you would expect them to be in terms of doing it. So do you think there's a, a chance that, you know, the likes of Monzo or Tandem could really be established in the, the US? I, I think so. Uh, certainly in an indirect way. I don't know about a, a direct way, i.e. the same brand with the same business model. Uh, but we should take, you know, a few step, steps back, right? So up to now has not been any startup uh, that has been successful in the uh, U.S. with a, you know, pure challenger bank uh, model. Reason being probably investors didn't have the type of appetite for a high upfront capital cost, both in terms of license as well as technology needed to build a new bank from scratch, given the interest rate environment and given uh, US regulators at the stance. Uh, 
And most of the models, and you named Simple and uh, Movin, some have been successful, some are uh, still working hard at the, uh, being su successful, and there are others uh, than these two, you know, they were more, you know, PFM-centric, uh, have all happened uh, a few years ago when maybe the market was not exactly ready for these types of uh, businesses, so, you know, maybe a little too uh, early. And then you have, on, on the other hand, in the, in the UK, the, the phenomenon of uh, challenger banks that uh, is much more recent, right? So maybe newer technologies, maybe a regulator that uh, uh, that is uh, more, quote unquote, open for business uh, mm -hmm. with these types of businesses, um, as well as uh, investors that have the benefit of, uh, you know, having matured over five, six, seven years within fintech and deciding that, uh, it is indeed interesting to invest in uh, these types of businesses, even though there's a license and even though the capital costs up front are much higher. We're going, we're going to see a transfer of knowledge and we may have a Monzo, a Tandem, a uh, Adam that is starting to talk with US-based investors saying, hey, you know, we'd love to uh, set up a new startup or a new JV and uh, learn from you and invest in this new business and you're going to help us uh, uh, to grow the business in, in the US. Or, you know, maybe directly, Monzo, Adam, or a or Tandem uh, starting a, a US effort uh, much earlier. Uh, hmm. Although from, from that perspective, you know, I, I rate uh, from a probability point of view, I read that much, much lower, given that most probably the UK challenger banks have a lot of work on their hand already in the UK. And uh, it's going to be quite daunting to just add another uh, uh, market like uh, like that. Yeah, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how this one plays out. And uh, I, for one, look forward to becoming the uh, 51st state of, uh, of the US, I have to say. I'll probably, at that point, get uh, the best out of Netflix as well, if uh, if nothing else. So, uh, But um, Pascal, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming on the show again. Oh, I appreciated the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much, Pascal. Um, what about everybody else in the room, then? How do you think this will affect us in terms of... Uh, Trump's plans to allow in the, the, the Brits again? Well, well, in my perspective, if you're a smaller player negotiating with a bigger player, I think you're not going to get a better the best deal. So I'll be weary that we're able to get a, the same deal that we'll be able to get with Europe. Uh, and Europe altogether as a country, if we consider the EU as a country, is, is bigger than the US. So we already have a deal with a very big country that is geographically close. And we've been dealing with what, a long time and we've wrote most of the regulation ourselves. And now we're aiming to go to Donald Trump and see if he's going to give us a good deal. So to me, this is opportunism in its finest, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, you're negotiating stuff. Hey, I've just got elected as Donald Trump. I'm doing all of these things. I want to show progress. And yeah. here's something that will absolutely, you know, just kind of create headlines, show action. And, you know, kind of, I don't know how realistic this is, but it's great PR. Like, it's just really, really great PR. Because, like, if it did come across, like, then... Yes, great. But actually, if you look at the US system, trying to get licensed state by state with all the different layers of regulators they have, like if Trump actually goes through with this, he's going to have a revolt from the states on his hands. He's going to have a revolt from the different regulators. Like, does he want to take this on or is this just more bluster that turns out to not be real? But it's so tempting, isn't it? I mean, we saw uh, in September uh, a report saying that there were five and a half thousand UK registered companies that rely on passports, more than 8,000 financial services companies based in the EU that also rely on a passport you know, to work with here. And following Brexit, it, it's just that sort of little tempting, interesting thing of, whoa, the US is a big market. That would be interesting. So with nothing to back it up, 
you know, no idea of how it would work state by state or federal or the variety of regulators there. You know, it's just that little chink of, of yeah. fintech hope. It's clearly not been thought through, but there's something very interesting. Like if I'm sitting in a large, small fintech bank, whatever in the UK at the moment, I'm thinking, yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> like in terms of like expansion of brand, expansion of where you want to go, like it could be interesting, but it needs thinking through. Like it's just got to be bluster. I mean, there was there was a comment in the story that says any UK US deal on passporting could form part of a new trade deal, which some have said could be agreed in just 90 days once Britain has left the EU. So not anytime soon. I think the key word days. in that statement is could. <laughs> Very much so. Pure hypothetical. It does feel slightly like leaving one bad relationship to join another bad relationship, doesn't it? So we'll, uh, we'll have to see where this will go. It's going. slightly different. It's because, first of all, the first relationship, you design most of the relationship. Okay, okay this one is completely new, and you're the, you're the small guy negotiating with a very, very big guy. In the EU thing, we were lots of small guys agreeing something, which is a slightly different story. Mm, I think in, in, in terms of the UK, we've got a lot of opportunity to take innovation. So if you think faster payments, that would be exciting in the US. Oh, yeah. Chip and pin. Now, all these things, like, what a great opportunity. So I'm a, uh, I mean, a fintech that's going to do chip and pin cards. Exactly. That could be the new thing. Well, they're, they're having a bash at chip and pin, aren't they? But it's like, chip and guys, we're here from the future. We've got this stuff. Like, we put it in, it's working. You know, this is how to do it. Really interesting. There is opportunities, aren't there? I think um, if you look at all of the risks that we're seeing, so cybersecurity, I know, will come up. Um, I think the US has a great opportunity in the sense that they don't have these because it takes three days for payments to go from A to B. I think uh, one of my friends recently moved over there and I think his bank was actually writing a check and sending it to his landlord. So um, I'm thinking the US um, and London fintech scene have got a great opportunity to collaborate. Uh, but as you said, there's plenty to do. I thought there's quite some interesting comments at Davos as well, which uh, only add to this. Uh. I think there's tons of American consumers right now that are dreaming to work with a British company coming and telling them how crap they are. And we'll form a queue. Um, moving on then. So uh, there's a, another story on payment. So this is MySys aims to kill peer-to-peer lending and alternative lending. Aidan, what do we think of this one? Uh, yeah, so MySys have said that they're going to sell peer-to-peer lending software to banks. So, bank- and it's probably worth saying who MySys are. For those not familiar, MySys are a vendor who sell like lots of banking software to banks. So this is this is right okay. up their street, kind of saying, hey, there's this been this fintech thing. These fintech guys are doing alternative lending. So it's the likes of what um, think of a peer-to-peer lender, Zopa, Zopa, those lending sorts of lending club, all those sorts of companies who did reasonably well, have IPO'd, have done pretty good business. Arguably in fintech, they've been the success story other than the payment side of it. Um, but And banks haven't really got into this space because it's not been where they've played. They've not had the risk appetite for it, maybe not had the systems for it. And Mysis comes along and goes, hey, here's this product. And now we're going to kill fintechs. And it's like, I don't, I mean, it's great PR, but I don't know if that's the right positioning. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, there's some bold claims saying that, you know, once we, once we sell this software to banks, they're just going to kill the peer-to-peer lenders. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the peer-to-peer lenders have crafted their product over years and it's been tough going. Some have done well, some have not done so well. I don't just think that you sell some software to banks and they say, okay, we, we can change our existing lending practices. We'll start doing some nice peer-to-peer. My question is yet, who's going to own the risk of default? I mean, the peer, in the peer-to-peer sector, we have, obviously, it's a consumer, it's a buyer beware type approach. And that has had the result of having less supply than demand in the in the in the capital side. So so if the banks are going to propose this and promote this, will consumers be comfortable with accepting the risk of the default of 
of the other side. Well, of the so banks could spend this, right? So the, they could offer it on the wealth side as a way of saving. Like if you're buying debt from you know some some other part of the economy, then actually what you're doing is you've got a higher yield um, savings account of sorts. Mm-hmm. Now, can you educate the public? Can they know that there's risk that value may go up yeah. as well as down? I mean, technically that's what they say about ISAs as well, um, but there is a level a little bit more guarantee there. So you know if there's yield there and there's there's no savings going out, then maybe- but, but doesn't that cut directly into a core business model, into the core revenue streams for large banks? that they have capital, they are experts at managing risk, you know, knowing who to lend to and taking the capital from here to move across there, maturity transformation, all of that kind of stuff. Isn't that what banks are about? Well, what, that's what banks do. Banks do peer-to-peer lending. They've always been doing it. The other thing is that they shield the investor uh, with their own risk management and they earn a yield on the back of that. So in this case, what they're saying is that we'll pass some of the risk to you. Mm-hmm. By beware again. So if it goes bad, it's your it's your fault. I think the economics of it is one discussion. I think the PR dimensions of it will be also quite quite substantial. If I lose money because the bank told me this is a good investment and it wasn't. There's a separate story come out today, and it's not on one of the ones we're covering. But um, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, came out and said we're looking at you know, there's going to be a need for regulation in fintech. And indeed, there was somebody from the Bundesbank saying we're going to need regulation in fintech. Yeah. And you know, FT Alphaville for some time have been saying, hey, these these peer-to-peer lenders look a bit dodgy. You know, like they're setting up their own hedge funds, they're buying their own debt. You know, it's it's all looking a bit strange. And I think the regulators are starting to sniff it coming. We haven't had that big PR disaster that big default yet but you know the bloodhounds are sniffing here with with something going on so there is an element of risk and there's always been a question about the controls these companies have coming from inside the banks i would also add the ex-chairman of the fca the attorney said the same thing that he thought that the risk on the ready capability some of these p2p player players are is terrible i didn't use these expressions but they were just as bad so i think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on peer-to-peer so for the banks to go and after a segment that is going to be more Scrutinized, I think, may not be a viable thing. So MySys is just doing the PR spend for a product they've launched. Yeah. I think in terms of collaboration, it has to come down to two things. Either is their customer value, number one. Yeah. Secondly, is their business value. I guess with revisions of balance sheets and capital, then it ultimately comes down to are customers willing to take more risk um, and what is the customer experience like? If customers are willing to take more risk, then they will get a higher yield and that's been kind of consistent across the whole investment market as long as time has, uh, has gone on for. So I think for me is... Jermaine, great PR has said it's a global story. However, it ultimately from a perspective is you have to collaborate on customer first, business second, and then everything else comes to fruition. And I think that's interesting. Uh, Nick Hungerford uh, from Nutmeg, I heard him speak, talking about the fact that uh, sort of 20-somethings in the UK don't really have anywhere to put their money now. It used to be you could have a savings account and you'd be paid interest on it, or maybe you put down a deposit on a house. And so the house would be the, the thing that grew. And now finding it's so difficult to get into the housing market and so difficult to make anything on on interest, those safe harbours, those traditional routes of investing are disappearing uh, and being replaced by things where people have to understand risk a bit better. So whether you go to Nutmeg or Scalable Capital or you know a bank that's suddenly uh, exposing more risk to customers in terms of 
are getting more award. Oh, it's an interesting space. Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Had to, sorry. <laughs> there's speculation and there's speculation. In there, but, uh, <laughs> You'll see. Well, there's, so definitely one to watch and it'll be very interesting to see how uh, banks react to uh, my sister's moves there. Next up, we've got a uh, an interesting one on Business Insider. So this is Siemens Partners with Scalable Capital. So Scalable Capital, who have uh, been on the show before, um, I actually managed to catch up with Adam French, the CEO of Scalable Capital, earlier this week. So let's hear from Adam. Today, I am speaking with Adam French. Adam is the founder and CEO of Scalable Capital, which has just partnered with Siemens Private Finance. Adam, please tell us a little bit more about Scalable Capital, what you guys are up to, and what you hope to achieve with the partnership with Siemens. Yeah, sure. No, thanks a lot for having me on, David. So Scalable Capital, it's a, a digital wealth manager. Um, so we've seen a few of businesses like ourselves pop up over the last, let's call it four or five years, starting in the US and, uh, and now in Europe. And we're very much one of, the, one of the key players in Europe now. But what really makes us different in terms of our offering is that most of the new players that have came to market have really changed wealth management when it comes to distribution. Um, so wealth management was typically closed to people that only had, let's call it £500,000 or even more to invest. Uh, and you would go and see your own little private wealth manager uh, down at, uh, in an oak panelled office. And they've really brought this to, to the mass market uh, by offering a digital channel. So most of the, most of the solutions out there have really done good, a good, great job at kind of digitizing the customer journey. So, you know, great customer experience, great user experience and UX, but the actual underlying strategies themselves, the way that money is invested, actually heavily relies on the, on the methodologies of old, you know, stuff which has been used since the 1950s. So the way that we really differentiate ourselves is, is using technology not just to change the packaging in the distribution model, but to really use technology to change the, the product itself, which is the way that we're managing money. And I think this is... Uh, this is really one of the things that, that sets us apart. Um, and, and I think that's what, what excited a partner such as, as Siemens Private Finance as well. Um, so this is a deal that we're, we're really excited about because it's been part of the conversation that we've been having over the last 12 to 18 months. It felt like about 18 months ago, the conversation regarding fintech was fintech versus banks and fintech versus the incumbents. And now it seems like the conversation is much more of one which is collaborative. Um, and this is one of the deals we've been working on for a while, um, the first of many. And essentially what we're going to be doing with Siemens is we're going to be offering our service um, both to the current employees of, of Siemens in Germany, Germany to begin with, uh, as well as their, their retirees. And Siemens have their own in-house kind of employee benefits platform uh, where they offer insurance products, they offer pension products, they offer mortgages, and Scalable Capital is going to be the first offering within the wealth management space. You know, not only the digital wealth management space, but the, but the wealth management space in, in its entirety. Um, so this was a deal that we were competing against the incumbent industry uh, to win. So something that we were very, very excited to, uh, to actually be able to close. There are some pretty big name competitors in this space, the wealth fronts and the nutmegs. Do you really think that it will continue to be a national sector or will we see some of the big name global fintech players in the robo market? Do you think really, I guess, that uh, potentially even some of the big boys just snap up the small guys like BlackRock have been doing with Future Advisor? 
I think it is just a matter of time, um, but they will be very, very slow. So what we've seen in the U.S. with BlackRock is their acquisition of a future advisor. And I think that sets a very good precedent of, of what they're able to do there and basically provide robo solutions to their clients. I think that we have to be um, conscious that, that things like this will start to launch in Europe as well. Um, but we've had conversations with a lot of the retail banks and the private banks, and they're really just trying to specify exactly what their problems are. They have problems. They know what they, know what they are. They have many problems, um, but they're really trying to work out how they bring digital into their current offering with all of the leg legacy technology that they have, you know, be it the core banking system or be it the CRM systems or be it just the culture of the firm. So I think that we have to be aware that we're going to be seeing all of the major brands, you know, be it the retail banks or the, the smaller niche or private banks or even some of the corporates or some of the tech players coming to the space and, and offering something, something with an investment spin on it. You know, it might not be your kind of full service uh, and kind of wealth manager, but it's going to be something to do with helping people, guiding people, advising people how to, how to invest in the capital markets. But I really think that Europe is, Europe is, let's call it, three to five years behind where the US is right now. And kind of put on top of that a very fragmented market. Um, so, so far, I think you mentioned that, you know, you've got Nutmeg in the UK and, and you've got very national players. Uh, we haven't really seen too many players apart from ourselves and, and Money Farm who've been able to expand beyond one country. Um, and for us, that was really part of the DNA on day one, because Europe is, is, is a huge market, but the individual countries, not so much. So we really had the philosophy on day one that we wanted a business that could scale across different geographies, different jurisdictions, different regulatory environments, different languages, different custodians, different currencies. There's so many kind of verticals of complexity that we had to deal with. And it was these verticals that made it challenging on day one, but then make these these B2B opportunities much easier to provide because we're able to bespoke them a bit more given the flexibility, given the modularity of the platform that we've built. No, that makes absolute sense. And as you say, you cannot have scalable capital without it being scalable, can you? So congratulations again on the partnership and really looking forward to seeing what comes next. Well done to the team at Scalable Capital for that one. Moving on, we have a story up on Reuters. This is Tencent Capital takes a stake in Aviva, which is quite an interesting move, I, I think, in terms of uh, where we're at. What do you guys think of this? Uh, I think it's a move into uh, an interesting direction. If you think about uh, what uh, FinTech is enabling to do, so the digital platforms are enabling communities of users to suddenly create substantial presence in the financial services market if and look at the way they've already cornered the market the payments market why not work with other providers of financial services to complement your banking type proposition and they'll be doing it without being a bank so none of the cost none of the overhead none of the legacy uh, customer and trust and appetite would be there uh, and somebody else is taking all the onus of building the product so if they have a strategy of becoming a bank-like entity, I want to call them a bank because I don't think they want to be one. Or they are, but they don't want to be uh, kind of weighed down by all the regulation. I think this is an interesting one. It's interesting that a lot of people want to do financial services, but they want to have a different distribution model for financial services yeah. across different platforms. And that we're seeing that primarily in China, that this different distribution model is already established, is working for other companies is driven by more of a technology vision, and it's done primarily without a banking license. 
And, and But you don't see it as often in the West, a traditional Western markets. Well, but will we see that? Is that? I think we see it. We're seeing it in France and Germany. I ah. think if you look at the O2 Theodore partnership and the launch of the O2 card, the O2 bank account there, it's absolutely fantastic because it, you always think, okay, it's another brand giving a financial product. They're actually giving, as a, as a loyalty reward, they're giving gigabytes, which can be traded and you can send it to your friends and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a really good loyalty plan, which costs very little to the manufacturer. And then you look at Orange and they bought a bank, they bought Groupama Bank, and they're thinking of entering the financial services and banking market by actually buying a little bank that they can actually run things with. So I think we're going to see a growing number of non-bank communities entering the banking world because it's relatively easier now to become a bank because of technology. I was talking with uh, Veronica Rebecca Scherer, who's an analyst at UBS last week, and she had this really interesting sort of thesis around unbundling and rebundling happening at the same time. Because everyone's seen that PowerPoint slide of here's the HSBC homepage and here's how individual startups are coming along to, to take away small parts of that business. But at the same time, you've got this rebundling because no one wants to deal with 25 different apps on your phone to take all of those things and, and work on them at the same time. And I think it's interesting how the rebundling can happen differently, mm -hmm. both in terms of consumer brands connecting with financial services, around aggregators, around companies like Bird, around Monzo running marketplace banking. You know, it's a different rebundling at the same time and unbundling. Can I go a bit philosophical on you on this? Oh, please. Oh, oh, knowledge you some background drugs? music? <laughs> background music. What customers want, they don't want the financial products that the banks are selling. They, nobody wakes up in the morning dreaming, mm, credit card. Okay. <laughs> so they all say, I want to go on holiday. And there's different means of getting to this point. So for ultimately, customers have three financial needs. Simple, three needs. One, they want to pay somebody. And they don't really care if it goes through Visa, MasterCard, Amex, PayPal, uh, etc., JCB, China Union Pay, or even iTunes. Just want to be able to send from money from A to B. Two, they, want, they don't have enough money and they need to get some extra money. Be it, uh, you know, 50 pounds to get to the end of the month to 500,000 to buy a house. And third, they have a bit of extra and they want to protect it. And they want to do a savings plan all the way down to an insurance policy, all the way to investment product and so on. The banks have forced themselves to create all these products because they couldn't price them at the point of sale like they used to do in the 15th century in Genoa. Okay? They couldn't do that. So they had to create these products that are, have very clear frameworks. If one, somebody designed the bank today, they should say, okay, three products only. And that's what these guys are doing. So the rebundling will happen around the simplification of the proposition rather than complexity. But I'd add a fourth fourth case okay because i think that there's the day-to-day -day management of getting from payday to payday there's the intelligence and the the being able to Logic. to manage that uh i paid in a big chunk at the start of the month yeah. and all kinds of money comes out and i i have to almost manage that three set of products mm -hmm. but i don't want to manage it i want them to manage themselves i want that personal financial advisor as a system to to help me navigate these it's safe to spend now, for example. Uh, so. I mean, Again, I think the, on top of that, there's a fifth dimension, which then oh, looks at the product set. Come on, guys. Five point seven is. Um, string theory. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there's also a big protection angle. So if your house was to get burned down or was to be flooded, I would hope if that's, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to have saved to that. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was invest, earn, no, protect, change it. protect, no invest, because investors are subsidized that protect. Oh, so oh, we've got a whole tax on Change it up. I have, a bit of, I have a bit of money. I want to protect it. I want to protect it by investing and making it grow, or I want to put it in my savings account that grows a little bit, or I get an insurance policy and make sure it doesn't disappear. So how does that differ to the product, sorry? 
It's because it's all chunked up into pieces. I think as a consumer, I, I want to, I would like some artificial intelligence come and tell me, okay, Alessandro, you have uh, 10,000 pounds. You have these choices. What's your risk yeah. appetite? You just want to make sure it grows slowly. Okay, put it in savings. Do you want to you know, have an upside and with the risk of downside, put it in investment? Do you just want to have pay me a certain lump, lump sum amount and you know that at the end of X amount of time, you're going to get some money back? And somebody helps me think it through. What happens right now, I go to a branch and some guy that has a target of selling me a specific product tells me that that's the thing that I need. And it may not be so. It's yeah. not terrible for me. It's not going to kill me, but it may not be the exact right thing that I need. And I think there's definitely been a regulatory push to try and change that and to try and you know try and protect consumers. And I think you know the whole industry takes that very very seriously. But I think there is something about the nature of selling. What Jason calls, I think, in our, on our one percent done podcast for for eleven FS was you know that commodity financial products thinking in those like analog products for digital services. Like if you've got that uh, that legacy of those products and you've been thinking in those those products, that resimplification becomes really important. How do I get to save? borrow, pay with intelligence over the top. But then that intelligence over the top allows you to have all of this granularity from my individual specific use cases, which is why AI. <laughs> no, but imagine, imagine if you go to a bank though and you tell them, uh, you know, forget about all these product silos that you've created. You know, your credit card targets and your loan targets are no longer there, your overdraft targets are no longer there. You just have to think about customer credit. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a great example because when you talk to end customers about overdrafts and secured personal lending and credit cards, you know, and the the behavioural aspects of those, how you pay them back, how they're related, but also the, there's, there are brand aspects around that. Mm-hmm. You know, the credit card companies have spent a lot of money making credit cards sexy. Overdrafts, not so much. Mm-hmm. But in the end, customers want to borrow money for something, to buy something, to pay a bill, to smooth out their finances. You know what that end mechanic is turns into something different, or there there are more than just those three types of mechanics in the universe of, of lending, I guess. And I think the the mechanics part is really interesting because it has to be personal to you. So if you know that you wouldn't pay something back, so if I take a thousand pounds to go on holiday, I will never ever take it back. Um, I think some people will tell you I would prefer to take X which is a credit line, rather than take it from my savings because I will never replenish my savings account ever again. Yes. So actually, I think it's personal to you. You have to make your own decisions because every customer is different. So I think the data aspect will come on uh, will come on too. Uh, the intelligence part, absolutely. And I think it's, it's really hard to generalize 60 million people across the whole of the UK to say, Jason needs X because he needs a text message to tell him he spent five pounds on coffee because it works in Shoreditch very frequently. However, my gran, who likes to go and buy her vegetables and thinks sure. direct debits are the devil, doesn't like text messages. She doesn't want to know if she's been paid sure. her pension, if she's got £200 left. So I think how we get to a point where it's segment of one, the products are agnostic. I think everyone's done, uh, gone through that stage. We've simplified across the whole industry. Um, there's been a real push both from a regulator and both from within the organisations to do that because if you can't explain it to your gran, it's very difficult to explain on a frequent basis. So I think everyone has gone through that simplification. But for me, it has to be individually led and you can't do you mean, put people into big buckets because everyone is very different. Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. I think this is both the chat around this in terms of how we move the products to services conversation and actually what um, Aviva and Tencent have done here. I think definitely kind of watching that space. Um, continuing the Chinese stories here, actually, we have 
um, something that was uh, announced in Finextra. So we had China's Ant Financial go global in a bid for the two billion customers. And they're looking to do this over 10 years in terms of where they're at. Jason, you were lucky enough to talk to James Lloyd, who is the Asia-Pacific fintech leader for EY on this one. So let's hear a little bit from James. So James, Ant Financial CEO Eric Ching wants to serve 2 billion people. Uh, for those who haven't been following China, Asia-Pacific, and the just crazy things that are happening there, can you give us a little background on, on Ant Financial for people who don't know about it? Sure. Um, well, so let's come back to the two billion number because that's actually been been around for a little while. So we'll speak about that in a bit. But I guess by way of background, Ant Financial, uh, effectively the financial affiliate of Alibaba, um, which, as you know, is 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 China and indeed the world's biggest e-commerce uh, site at the moment. Effectively started out as Alipay uh, in around 2004. Um, uh, this is Ant Financial now it's spun out. I think 2011 and, and subsequently renamed a few years later to Ant Financial. So. Alipay was originally the PayPal-esque or escrow payment service uh, of the Alibaba e-commerce site. So really enabling Chinese to, uh, to um, you know, purchase goods and services on, on e-commerce sites for the first time. So as a consequence, it's, it's got a huge domestic market. And indeed, I think the last estimates I saw was about 450 million active users on Alipay uh, and over 150 million average daily transactions. Um, so to give you kind of a sense of... of, of contrast, PayPal now estimates about 200 million users, so less than half of that globally, and indeed about a tenth uh, the number of average daily transactions. So really Alipay being the core of Ant Financial, but it's since uh, grown to encompass you know myriad other financial services. So from the payments piece, it's expanded into wealth management, uh, insurance, credit reference services, they've got their own digital bank, etc. And again, each of these has, uh, in their own way, grown uh, at a pretty tremendous uh, speed. So again, Weibao, which is the wealth management arm of Ant Financial, again, last estimate was about $110 billion USD um, AUM and about 150 million clients. Uh, and that was in, in less than two years, it grew to that size. So again, you know, pretty, pretty sizable numbers being China, but uh, in Ant Financial is probably, certainly in my estimation, the, the, the most exciting fintech in the world right now. And so I guess from my you know, very uh, distant understanding, their, their biggest competitor is Tencent. Is that right? Um, yes and no. Uh, both occupy very different spaces uh, in, in, in China and, and indeed as they internationalize. So uh, Ant Financial, as I mentioned, you know, very much the affiliate of, of Alibaba, the dominant e-commerce site. So, so Ali, Alipay actually settles about 75% of domestic GMV on the Alibaba sites and, and about 65% international GMV on, on Alibaba. So, you know, that's e-com. Tencent, on the other hand, much more of a messaging uh, and indeed games, digital gaming company, first and foremost, of which WeChat uh, is the dominant messaging service in, in China. So again, you know, hundreds of millions of users and indeed hundreds of millions of, of whom have now associated their payment credentials. So, you know, I think where they compete first and foremost is in time and attention for, for uh, internet users and in particular mobile users in China and both uh, very much competing on the kind of uh, online or peer-to-peer -peer payment segment and increasingly offline. Um, so point of sale payments, microtransactions and so on. So, you know, China's a, a world away or seems a world away from London at the moment. Uh, is this something Europe should be worried about or, or, or watch? 
Um, I'm not sure I'd say worried about it. It depends who you're speaking with. I mean, certainly it's one to watch. Um, and Financial raised the single largest private funding round for any internet company ever uh, last year uh, with their Series B raise of 4.5 billion US dollars. Um, and that was approximate kind of $60 billion valuation. So certainly, you know, that I think put it uh, on the radar of, of many people beyond Asia. Um, but in addition to that, I think they've been, you know, really internationalizing the business at a fairly rapid clip. So you may be aware of their uh, investment in Paytm, which is India's largest uh, wallet provider, uh, Send Money, Lazada, uh, myriad other investments, acquisitions in, in Southeast Asia, and increasingly partnering in, in, in the US and Europe. So we've seen, uh, you know, many of those uh, types of partnerships to date, whereby really Alipay is kind of following and I, I use Alipay and Financial interchangeably, is, is following Chinese tourists as they travel abroad and enabling merchants to accept Alipay as a form of payment. Um, and I think, look, we're likely to see, uh, you know, ever more significant investments uh, overseas and, uh, and perhaps even acquisitions. So thanks, James. Uh, that was a great intro to and Financial. No worries. Great. Thank you very much, James. And what do you guys think in the room? Because this seems like a... Two billion, that's one hell of a target, right? I think I've been joking with you guys. I've taken a bit of a social media detox, so no Pinterest, no juggling dogs on Facebook for me. I've actually been listening to your dulcet tones, so thank you very much, firstly. <laughs> um, it's been very informative, but I think the theme that keeps coming out of each and every podcast is how do we unbundle services and go to where the customer is? And we're absolutely bought into that. I think China is ahead of the curve. So if you look at WeChat, if you look at Alibaba, what's the future of EMEA in the US? It's absolutely that. So payments have to come to the customer. Balances have to come to the customer. There is no longer the existence of, please come to me if you want to do X and you've got 35 apps to do 35 things. I think the future is absolutely how to, as you've said, unbundle, rebundle. Um, but China, I thought the funny thing for me was a four and a half billion Series B round, which is just <laughs> incredible. Like that number just doesn't even exist. So uh, I wonder what they're going to do with it. Like, how do you, mm, four and a half billion? I will start with 10 pounds on a new coffee yeah, exactly. uh, machine. Well, yeah, their coffee um, machine must be amazing. Yeah, like the so. best coffee in the whole world. But yeah, I thought two billion, do you mean punchy? It hit the press, perfect. Yeah. Well, um, but, but these these things, you know, were I think that's that's something to maybe point out. You know, we'll talk we'll continually talking about how infinitely scalable these systems would be in terms of doing it. But there has to be a limit, right? What what can they possibly be spending two billion on in terms of this funding round? So part of it, it was buying big investment. investment company in America. <laughs> well, well and, and interestingly connected to that is uh, actually just some news, as you pointed out, uh, Alessandro. So Ant Financial have put a bit of money aside and bought themselves money around. So this is a very interesting one, Aidan. What yeah, it's, a po- it's a pocket change for them, $880 million they've uh, spent on uh, buying MoneyGram, second biggest uh, remittance company in the world. So it's interesting, a few week, a few days back, Jack Ma met with, with Donald, uh, with Mr. Trump, uh, the President of the United States. And- uh, Well done, you, they, got, you got through that. <laughs> <laughs> the, they, they were chatting about, and they were there was a kind of a mutual admiration society and so on. It'd be interesting to see how Donald would respond to the fact that now a Chinese company owns distribution of a substantial amount of, of individuals within the UK, in the US and globally. And they now have a gigantic pipe to pump uh, Chinese financial services, if that's thing that exists, into their market. So I, I think, interestingly, Donald Trump tries to avoid and try to minimize the impact of China. But China is going to become a, fun, a fundamental component of financial services across the globe, 
And uh, this is just the first salvo, I think, of what we're seeing here. Mm. Yeah, I love, I love the sentence you said when you walked in before the podcast started, which is, um, how will Trump react to that? So Trump, the protectionist, um, is just got into office having seen MoneyGram, you know, now, now MoneyGram gets bought by one of the biggest companies in China. Like, will this register on the radar or will this just get buried as a piece of news that doesn't matter? It, it's going to be interesting to watch. But it's on the Wall Street Journal, so I think he'll do something about it. So. Yeah. But some crazy numbers here as well. I mean, in the uh, the article, Ant Financial's global presence and existing network serves 630 million users, including 450 million with Alipay and 180 million with Paytm, that's uh, India's leading mobile payment provider. So that connects in MoneyGram's money transfer network of 2.4 billion bank and mobile accounts and 350,000 physical locations. I mean, this is a big old uh, smash-up of, of financial services. It's called distribution, real, substantial, hem- hefty distribution. You know, they have it. Distribution, capital D. Yes. You know, all capital. Funny, Jason has a saying that, um, you know, that, that, like in banking, even after the financial crisis, there hadn't been that moment for real technological change, right? You, you didn't have to just kind of go for that massive moment of change that wasn't essential to, to change. So what you've missed is, you know, Facebook happened and we looked at Amazon happening and we've had the Uber, will there be an Uber of banking? And there's been all of these headlines, but you haven't had that that mindset to just really radically reshape the industry. What I think we're seeing from China is clouds on the horizon here. There's a different distribution model. This is working, it's growing, and actually you should be paying real attention to that. Well, not, Donald's not Trump since the... Uh, Donald's not Trump's. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking. <laughs> Donald's not tweeted since the uh, deal was announced, but I think we can probably uh, we should, some, keep, we should, we should keep an eye on that one because we should cool. send him a tweet now just to let him know. <laughs> I, Donald, I have you said. seen this deal? <laughs> because it's you know they're, they're saying that they're going to they're going to complete the deal by the second half of 2017. I think they're going to have some interesting challenges on their hands. Hmm. Interesting one, definitely to watch and. Uh, like I say, both in terms of how it pans out for uh, both of those parties, but actually how the uh, uh, US president sort of reflects on that one. Uh, moving on, so this is a piece in the register. So this is uh, Alessandro, mine and your ex-employer. So Lloyd's bank outage as DDoS attack. Simon, interesting one, what happened? Yeah, so reportedly a DDoS attack, so a distributed denial of service attack. This is where lots of robot computers around the world ping, so send a little message to some servers um, and the idea is what hackers will do is you know various compromised computers around the world um, they'll take them over turn them into drones and just ask them to start you know sending basic network requests to a bank server or to Sony servers or pick a big target here that's the most common form of hack uh, and I think uh, because this had happened uh, those it caused interruptions to their online service on the 11th and 12th of January, um, but it was initially blamed on unspecified technical glitches and customers were unable to check their account balances or make payments. Um, but actually, there's uh, there's been a whole bunch of stuff really going on underneath this, uh, uh, which is second story we'll come on to. Uh, the only statement really coming out of LBG had been we'd experienced intermittent service issues with internet banking and uh, we don't want to speculate on the cause of these. Well, the speculation happened a little bit after that, didn't it, Aidan? What came out after that? Yeah, it turns out that this uh, hacker group has claimed responsibility for that. 
along with the chilling email that was sent. Um, to whom it may concern, we have identified severe security issues related to onlinebusiness.lloydsbank.co.uk and online.lloydsbank.co.uk. As an effect, both these services will be put offline starting from the 11th of January at 0001 GMT until they are fixed. The consultancy fee of 75,000 GBP must be paid via Bitcoin, of course, uh, to the following address. Most consultancies do get paid by Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, Obviously, we it's do. It's a key trait. <laughs> Once paid, the services will be back online. You will get a list of flaws related to both services along with our disappearance. Feel free to test our capabilities and patience. Good luck. A lovely email to receive. That is very interesting. So what do they do then in this scenario? Do you negotiate with uh, the... I don't think 75k is quite reasonable for a security review, but uh, Alessandro's got a good point. I think another way to look at it is vandalism. And what do you do when your banks get vandalized? You could pay the vandals to come vandalize it, or you can just fix it and try to mend things. I think that's what they're going for. There is this interesting thing in the hacker community where there's a view that if I find a code vulnerability, you should thank me. Um, and you should pay me for that. And the, the interesting thing is tech companies have for a while actually been taking advantage of that. Like if you try and hack various things in Twitter or Facebook, they go, hey, that was crafty. And they give you a little job recruitment page. Like that is a cultural yeah, thing, yeah. but this is, I know this is quite but, but this isn't code bounty for a sophisticated analysis and, and detection. This is me brute forcing your shop. It's like me saying, I'm, I'm going to stop people shop, uh, shopping at your place by sending a million customers who are not going to buy anything. I'm not defending it. I'm simply saying there is a mindset here of these hackers where they genuinely, I believe, think that this is like a normal operating procedure. And there's probably a subset of that community that could be more more helpful, I think, in financial services. Not all of it, probably not these guys, but subsets of people who are not dissimilar entirely from that that could actually be really helpful with these I vulnerabilities. It, I think it's a bold think, statement. If, if a bank came out and offered a book about it, just go, you know, find problems yeah. with us and we'll give you $10,000 or whatever. That's an interesting strategy. Yeah. Whether you would then unleash a, a horde of denial of service attacks, oh, we're just testing. But I guess it is an interesting recruitment tool, potentially. This is not that. I think I don't want to conflate two stories. On one hand, there's there's hacking, finding vulnerabilities, pointing them out, having them fixed. On the other hand, there's uh, having a bot army of compromised PCs and baby monitors and you know internet any internet fridges you know attacking uh, a major financial in, financial institution and it's not the first time you know uh, we've seen tesco uh, attacked this year we've seen lloyds attacked and i'm sure there are plenty of attacks going on behind the scenes right now all the time yeah well, for, even- for the techies this is really interesting however i mean it becomes a theoretical one i think for the masses this highlights a societal issue that we need to tackle as digital grows as the user bases grow as digital banks come and go live, then society, we have to tackle both this, cybersecurity, but secondly, the fraud risk that exists. I mean, ensuring that customers know what they should and shouldn't do has to be 100% paramount. And I think as a bank and as an industry, we're all responsible for that. I mean, if you even understand what a denial of service attack is, chances are you're not going to divulge passwords over the phone. However, for, for this audience, I would hope, please do read up on various <laughs> websites, including Barclays, the shameless plug. However, but 
for us, it's how do we influence the people that are targeted? It tends to be ones of older ages. It tends to be ones that are a little bit more wealthier. The, these guys, to Jason's point, I don't think they're going to be the nicest of people and what are not a very nice email at all to receive. However, I think for me, it's how do we tackle societal problems? And this is a big one that we need to solve for everyone. I, I fully agree with that. I, I absolutely fully agree. I think I'm making a slightly separate strategic point, which is like as a culture, Banks tend to view anyone who's, uh, they don't see the shades of gray in the hacking community, right? So there are these unsavory characters like these that, that we, that I wouldn't advocate anybody goes anywhere near. But there are other shades of gray who, people who would go for a bug bounty, who would, and it's, it's using a bit of those ideas that come out of the tech community on the strategic side that you don't necessarily show to customers that I think could be more helpful, but something that is, that comes from fintech, that comes from tech. That banks could do, and I know, um, you know Charles Ortig does a bit of this. He has a red team, and I know many others have. Um, but generally, I'd like to see more of that. I think it would be helpful. I think there's a comms angle to this as well. It's like Lloyd's were, you know, they won't say that there's a DAV, so they won't say that there's a hacker. There's a there's an old-fashioned thing that it shows vulnerability. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's an argument now. It's saying it's just an accepted practice. Yeah. We are on this. We know what the problem is. We've got mm-hmm. protections in place. Yes, it's taking down some systems. Yeah, there's definitely. I think people like you and me may accept that. I think there's a lot of, but part of the customer, their customer base that will say, "Okay, then is my money safe?" Mm-hmm. And that. But you that's can a, say that. You can say, "Look, your money's safe, is, but insured. the website's just going through some problems caused by a hacker." But we're in trouble on top of it and we're doing this. I think there is a communication style thing that is absolutely, you know, a really good point that Aidan's making that the you know, monolithic organizations <coughs> historically haven't adopted, but with the advent of social media have started to, to, to adopt. But I still think there's a difference in tone and, and there kind of has to be um, between, you know, the big companies and fintechs. But I, I, again, I would advocate moving more towards that more open style of communication. I, I okay. agree with Frankie though. I think I, I don't know how you could word this to make my mum not be scared of it mm-hmm. and, and I think that's the that's the thing that you kind of come back to is yeah. even with uh, you know the, the best communication the best way of engaging with your customers this type of thing still will alienate a group of people who were fearful of digital services anyway but I think Which what it would do is that an education <laughs> and a, what a great opportunity career wise if your child attend and they want to get into internet security we propose that that would be a good option exactly when yeah. I was 10 security wasn't that cool cryptography I'd never even heard of it sure. however that is a cool place to be and that's going to be the future of what we need in all organisations of any but size but before that before that world comes, before we have enough security experts and infrastructure is fixed and you know IPs can be traced, internet of things devices aren't set up insecurely, so they're suddenly pummeling national banks. Uh, we've got a, a period of a few rocky years. We've got some really interesting times coming up, I think. Oh, you have this some, is not going to be the last story this year of... Oh, you have uh, some really cool uh, rock stars. I think um, Sam's already mentioned trolls. You have some really cool people with really cool CVs out there. I think I was listening to your previous uh, episode with Tandem. They were saying hiring engineers is tough. Go and be an engineer. So like I said, they'll be the Michael Schumacher and the rock stars of the future. They are going to make it. So, I mean, we're certainly open. Please come and speak to us. We want cool people that can engineer, that can fix some of these things because they're not going away. They're only going to grow. I think it's it, it's interesting that, you know, we, we mentioned the the Tesco thing and obviously this is Lloyd's, but this this happened to N26 recently, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so this isn't just a problem that's uh, occurring within the you know, traditional banking system, actually some of the challenger banks have started to face these guys. And arguably, they've spent a lot less money in investing in starting these things up and are a, a smaller 
a smaller risk in terms of what they're doing. So I think this is something that's going to run and run. I'll be really interested to see what happens in this one next week. So no doubt we will be bringing you that. Uh, moving on, we have a, a news item on Finextra. So this is UK banks strike branch banking deal with post office. Aidan, tell us more. Yeah, so uh, currently in the UK, you can, uh, if depending on who you bank with, you can do take cash out, pay cash in, pay checks over the counter at post offices. And that's been opened up now to 99% of retail customers and 75% of business customers in the UK. So, uh, A, very interesting from a national infrastructure point of view, as branches are closing. This week, HSBC announced they were closing 62 in the UK. Um, but the BBA have released some stats saying, you know, the average distance is 1.4 mile from post office. So... Those cash in, cash out capabilities are there. We think it's probably freeze the banks to close down some of those expensive, uh, less profitable branches. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting shift in the banking landscape, the Main Street banking landscape, the, the moment pop. It, it's, it's like Airbnb of retail space. Like we're kind of moving into <laughs> that, like uh, organizations are starting to rent each other's space, but actually- mm. Can I turn my garage into a post office? <laughs> that, that's no bad thing, right? I mean, if you have very expensive uh, property, but actually you want to give direct human interface and customer services, and you've got another organization that has exactly the same problem, this seems like really sensible, like not very sexy, but really sensible, good innovation to me. I, like, I'm struggling to find the no, downside here. I, I think, well, there's no downside, but Maybe I, I brand? Th- think of it Think of it this way. A few years back, the branch, the banks were really proud of their branches and the branches were the way they differentiated. And mm. our color scheme, I don't know if you remember the, what was it, Blueberry that NatWest launched and they were proud of their, uh, was it Ros- Rosberry, a special Rosberry tone for their NatWest thing. So that was reflected everywhere. And there were ads about, you know, we're not going to become a trendy wine bar, but we'll become, we'll remain a bank. What this is telling us is the branches not only are being shut down, but they're not important anymore. And that's why they say whatever distribution channel I can find that accommodates that long tail of customers that that need the branch. Uh, I, I'm happy. I think that's Maybe a very uh, very cynical view, Alessandro. <laughs> I'm sure a couple of years ago you wouldn't have said that. I think for me it's actually um, it did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe why you're here. <laughs> um, so I think uh, for me, thirteen and a half thousand branches. What a great opportunity for everyone else to to get involved. I think the um, the opportunity around space. It's really hard to cut a building in half, particularly as digital transactions continue to rise. However, there are opportunities to do so. Garages could be one. Airbnb, I think, is a great analogy. However, I think, do you mean, this, A, has only upside. It's got great benefit for everyone in local communities that want to do branch um, interactions in this context. And again, the scale of opportunity that we get is just fantastic. I think your point around differentiation, for me, still exists. We've just opened a new branch in Newcastle. So branches are still important for now. Again, I know Jason has differing views. However, Jason isn't serving 15, 16 million customers. So you have to take a slightly different target operating model. However, things do change. And this is only a, a positive thing for I, me. I agree. I think this, this, life, Jason, this, this takes um, a lot of the, the noise potentially out of the branch of a bank and actually allows them to focus on the stuff that's really value add for, for customers. And, and you know, given that most of the digital challenges coming through have no network and have no branch network, arguably that's one of the strongest things to use as a different. Are you calling Monzo in the post office? Is that what you're calling? <laughs> that's me. <big. laughs> 
Not quite. <laughs> but we are going through a, uh, you know, obviously a societal level digital shift. So yes, there are 15, 16 million customers, uh, you know, that you've got, and a proportion of those are digital, and that proportion is growing, and that's the same for everyone. And so when we're seeing this decimation of branches, you know, year on year, more clothes as more people move to digital. And I was, um, I spoke at uh, a branch transformation conference a couple of months ago, and, and that was crazy. You know, you've got people selling cash machines and state-of-the-art branch stuff. And it's like, I'm sorry, guys. I, I, I was standing on stage, like almost apologizing that this is going to be some, something to move out of. And I had people coming up to me afterwards who were in all kinds of businesses, like money transfer and cash machine stuff, saying, you know, can 11FS kind of talk to us about digital transformation? And Because our business is going to disappear in, you know, five to 10 years' time. I think that that's the interesting point. You know, when we won't go digital overnight. It is this slow transition. And for me, the post office move is really interesting because you've got a kind of slightly sleepy, non-commercial brand that has that trust. You know, I, I hand things over that I trust they're going to be delivered. It's non-partisan. It doesn't sort of belong to one of the uh, the big players. So you don't have to have Barclays and HSBC talking about can we share branches and how would that work? Well, it's got to be red. It's got to be blue. It's got to be red. No, it's not going to happen. Raspberry. So, um, <laughs> so I like this this route because it's good for the post office. It gives them relevance in that that world can I, can of, uh, can, of digital. Can I just say one last thing? The One of the... When I started in banking, and I own, I've been a banker for only three years in my life, so it's not a very long period of time. One of the things they told me is that the branch is supreme because when you walk in, the branch manager knows you, and they're going to tell you about the products that you care about, and they are part of the community, and there's a, and they will provide your proposition and a service that really fits your needs. How is that going to happen in the post office? Do you have any views, Frankie, of how you're going to achieve that? Um, I think for me, the, do you mean the, a the scale, so it gives distribution. Do you mean we still have hundreds of branches and will continue to have hundreds of branches for the foreseeable future? I think for me, this is an opportunity. Do you mean uh, you can't afford to be everywhere? And uh, England is a very large place. You'd end up having to have a branch in every single town, and that isn't a commercially viable. But nor is it reflective of the trends that we're seeing. So for me, this is an opportunity a to to meet them local needs however we still I mean you have to look at footfall you have to look and you have to do the commercial model around it so branches will continue to be important the level of transactions that we'd expect to see through the post office will grow in terms of this distribution yeah. however we I mean we see the transactional type of banking going down and down every single year the quality conversations that happen in branches will still continue so I mean I, I still think I mean my previous role in digital it's how do we build the brand and Digital is as much as part of the brand as the branches are for different parts of the 24 million customers we have in total, of which 16 are current accounts. And the, I mean, it's one in two um, of the UK population bank with us in some shape or form. So they've got 13 and a half thousand times when your grand gives you a check that you can pop it in. And maybe I'm um, a very segment of one for me. However, you could deposit it by your mobile phone. I'm sure that's coming in the future. <laughs> or maybe now. Well, it's, it's an interesting one. And I think, you know, in a, in a trend that has, all, that has only been downward in terms of distribution channels for these types of things, it's interesting to have a little bit of an uptick in that with, uh, you know, this joint with the, uh, the post office. But um, moving on to the last one then. So we have a, a story from CNBC. And this is, uh, we always like to uh, finish with uh, something interesting. But this is, Deutsche Bank CEO says technology will be key to banking in the next five years. Who would like to start on this one? 
I'm, I'm amazed, really. <laughs> yeah, I think he's right. It was really, it was a really interesting point, and this was a, a speech that he was actually giving it out. So I know you can get sort of paraphrased in terms of things that you're doing, but reading through it in more detail, it, a it was definitely made now, and b he did actually make it a serious comment that he felt in five years' time that would be the most important thing. Simon, what do you think? Well, so for me, it's not that technology is important. It's like saying, you know, you can make any sort of platitude, you know, um, drinking lots of water is important. Like, yeah, we know. Um, but I think the, the more interesting statement here is that we're not sure that the fundamental nature of products will change much. Although regulation tends to impact that, we don't think the demands of our clients and our counterparts will change much. It's the delivery mechanism. And I mentioned that when we spoke to Anna Herrera, but for me, that's that's the debate here, is how do we change products? And so uh, when I spoke to Anna, we talked about that. Good, so I'm now joined by Anna Herrera. So Anna, you recently moved jobs. Where is it you're working now? Yes, I'm the fintech correspondent for Reuters in New York now. Ah, fantastic. Well, regular listeners will know that Anna joined us early on in Fintech Insider. And uh, uh, this week, um, we've been talking on Twitter a little bit back and forth about a story here where the Deutsche Bank CEO says technology will be key to banking in the next five years. So is he just catching onto the bandwagon now? Or is this like something that we uh, we should have been saying all along? <laughs> and especially considered where Deutsche are at. You know, wh- what do you think this is here, Anna? What are your thoughts? So first of all, we have to say that this is a story taken from a panel, so it doesn't really show the context very well. But I guess it is kind of funny. Um, If you read the headline, I got some amazing retweets out of it. Someone actually retweeted it saying that this is huge, if true. So it does sound a bit surprising now to come out with something so broad. But I guess it is a good sign, at least better now than never, right? Absolutely. Um, better now than ever. And I guess it's probably important to speak about that context of, of Deutsche and then some of the challenges that certainly the European banks have had with a number of regulators and, uh, and, and Deutsche specifically. Is there anything that springs to your mind as far as that context goes? Yeah, they've, they're undergoing a massive like technology overhaul as part of their strategy, new strategy, which is called Strategy 2020. So I think he was probably alluding to that, although I've not seen the whole panel. So I guess it's not five years anymore, but sort of. Uh, so um, they are going to invest heavily in technology. They are um, kind of um, streamlining their applications and reducing the number of applications they run on. And also, obviously, there's there's been some concerns around one of the recent fines they'd had to pay. So obviously, it makes sense that they might say that they weren't able to invest as much in technology because they were more worried about regulatory matters rather than technology. Yeah, so it's interesting. There's a quote here that says, we're not sure that the fundamental nature of products will change much, although regulation does tend to impact it. We don't think the demands of our clients and counterparts will change much. It's just the delivery mechanism that's going to change. Now, the emphasis entirely there is mine. I I haven't heard the original recording. But to me, that just seems like, okay, so we're going to put some lipstick on the pig. You know, we're we're going to make the delivery channel a little bit different. But actually, you know, our clients aren't changing. The market isn't changing. Banking's never going to change. Actually, we just need to stick it on a mobile device now and have it, you know, be be real time. I I don't know. I think that kind of... um, misses the point you know there's there's definitely something about uh having banks move away from being providers of commodity products of like here's your product you guys figure out the rest um to where a service company will help you 
do, you know, will deliver an end-to-end solution, whether that's in retail or especially in the more demanding corporates, you know, where uh, for, for a corporate, you know, Deutsche will only ever be one bank of many, but they're going to, you know, a corporate is going to want to see their data from all different banks all in one place you know like why aren't they moving into those new propositions and talking about a growth story just seems like a bit of a missed opportunity to me i don't know if you had any thoughts on that yeah i i agree this quote was a bit uh surprising because i i do think like clients demands change all the time so even if you're not talking about technology it's hard to say that nothing will change in client demand within the five years and i think actually technology will impact if you think of many different areas. I don't know, from even equity research, for example, like think of all the ways you could gather better information and improve the quality of your research. And that's just one tiny part of their business. So I think maybe this was, I don't know, again, like it's hard because I don't have the total context, but I think this was a bit surprising because, I mean, it's not just a new way to distribute your products. It's probably a shift in and it could impact think, what prob- products people want from you and what they don't want anymore, right? Like, for example, yeah. lending. It is actually yeah. changing the, the, the demands. People want faster lending than they get from a bank. And the bank doesn't even yeah, have to lend well, to them anymore. Yeah, lenders are, are a big yeah. part of that. And I think there's something about, what is it, 13 years after Facebook launched and what, uh, 18, 17 years after 18 years more? No, it's mm. more than that. It's nearly 20, nearly 20 years, 19 years since Google launched um, mm-hmm. yeah, that banks are cottoning on that this technology stuff might be important you know maybe um we're being a little unkind here to, to that but it's definitely how the headline reads and i think uh, there's there's definitely a really important need highlighted here for banks to be sure about when they go to the market with messaging uh, rather than saying yes technology is important yes we're spending all this money there's a little bit less talk and a little bit more action required um so that's our Elvis quote uh, quota covered for the day uh anna anything else you want to leave our readers with how can they um readers listeners uh how can they get hold of you how can they catch up with what you're writing about and uh, where can they find you so they can find me the best way is twitter so my handle is just my name and my last name and then all my stories are on Reuters, but I do retweet them and I tend to be generous and tweet other interesting fintech stories that do not come from Reuters also. Anna Herrera, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So coming back in, what do we think as a group? I mean, our product's going to change. I know we mentioned it earlier in the news, but like, are they just, is it the same commodity financial products that we're looking at? I mean, and is this the view held by everyone or, you know, kind of like, uh, can, can we see some innovation in products rather than just the delivery channel? Well, clearly from Deutsche Bank over the next five years, we're not going to see any changes in those product sets. But I think this is probably one of the things we continually talk about is the fact that uh, actually at the point where you're purely using digital as a, an enhancement to your distribution channel, then it doesn't really feel like you're actually taking advantage of all of the things that you really could be doing with it. So Jason wrote a blog post on uh, 11fs.co.uk and it was called, um, I have an app, which is um, the, the story about the dinner party. Have you told that one on the podcast before? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Like, I'm sure long-term listeners are going to get really bored of my same old anecdotes. But the... Um, I mean, this this is almost the first conversation that that we, that 11FS, have with almost any client that comes to us talking about making a new bank, making a new financial product, you know, moving uh, industries, being a retailer or utility, getting into this. It's a question of how does digital change things? Is it just a channel? Is it a, a replacement for the phone and for the branch and for the you know for mail, uh, or will it change things fundamentally? And I think you I think you know that my view is that the the virtues of digital, its real time intelligent contextual nature, make it 
uh, turn financial products into services because real-time intelligent contextual services are very much like someone, an individual looking after you, only it's not an individual. It's a group of services and a group of you know, intelligent software behind the scenes. So my view is that the, the basic financial products, the basic access to data, you know, the, the terms of getting hold of your money, the interest rates, the getting hold of a statement, that's the most basic data and transaction. And people, individual customers, whether they're small businesses, large corporations or individuals, have to then do a lot of work with that data in order to live their lives, get month to month, run their businesses, do trade finance and everything else in between. And that software, as it's eating the world, will eat that, will start to deliver targeted, personalised individual service uh, rather than a bank just providing a, a basic commodity financial product. So there's the one, and I'm sure we've said it before, about going from having you know the bank clock that tells you your transactions to the paper statement that has the transactions to the website that lists your transactions to the mobile app that lists your transactions. And, it, and that kind of evolution has not been really what digital services are all about. And I think you know having something real time. So if I'm if I've made a payment, seeing it two days later, and do I have enough money, actually causes me a bit of anxiety, especially if it's a large value payment. You know, buying on the internet, um, maybe buying a Christmas present or something, a birthday present. It, it those sorts of things can cause a lot of stress. But if I know real time, that's different. I, I think digital is has started off as a channel. I think uh, for, for those of us who've been in digital banking for a while, have no, we have noticed that products are modifying and changing on the back of it. I think what Frankie, what you mentioned about the segment of one is becoming a reality and not only conceptually, but also implement can be implemented right now. And what digital does is has extreme customization of the product that the customer's needs, um, which again, interestingly, is what banking was in the 15th century, because the banker and the bankee <laughs> sat in front of each other and they negotiated the right deal for themselves. Right so, now, the banks can actually do that again. Yeah. So again, listening to Jason, and I know he kind of, it makes the point and it makes it very well, I think. Heard loud and clear. So um, I just joined the business banking team. So I'm looking at 1 million SME clients, super important to us as an organization, super important to the UK economy. The big thing that we want to do is exactly that. How can we enable businesses to run their, uh, to run their companies without any friction? We agree any time spent doing banking isn't the time you're growing your customer base, networking, understanding your local market. So there's a couple of things, one of which is in pilot. The other one um, is absolutely live where we've turned around a business's data, which in theory they could have done if they would have been very good with pivot tables and Excel, very old school. However, um, smart uh, business insights and dashboard, arguably products, I think services, and it's absolutely a service business is where we tell a business owner, what's your local market like? How loyal are your customers? How frequently do they come back and, and service with you? That's digital. That's the real stuff that makes, oh, you're a sandwich shop. The sandwich shop two doors down actually has customers coming back three times more. Is your menu broad enough? And we give them the actions as well. So for us, that's absolutely what we need to do. And at the same time, we're offering integrations to the various accounting platforms. You have to make it super, super simple. So again, I've been listening and kind of knocking on my iPhone saying, please, can I come off hold? I think there's a conference call and it isn't. And talking away and people on the tube are like, what is this guy doing? Um, Benjamin, we've heard it loud and clear. The product kind of stuff has is, is gone away. It's not been around for years. It's about how do you make it absolutely frictionless? But, so we have some database you, on LinkedIn. You say that, that, but then the organization within banks is often by product line. The systems are often by product line. There's, you know, it's, uh, and that seems to be a, one of those fundamental tensions. Mm. This move from 
just as you were saying about individual products in the in, as they've always been towards these integrated digital services yeah. is tough for an organization your side. And as somebody who's you know, in a small business, running a small business, we, we use various banks and we use various banking services and it's still a current account in the middle of it with a lending product and a savings product and an overdraft product and fees and and so sure. there's, there's a lot of it that hasn't changed in the middle i think that some of the innovation you're right frankie around the edges and around creating new digital services around customer insights absolutely fantastic well they know how 12fs are getting on next time 12fs come out rather than 11fs we'll say 12fs have a better podcast than you have you considered alternatives damn those 12fs guys but i I think at the entire industry level it's it's a focus away from you know kind of the the early innovations which are you know around the edges to that very very core and and organizational stuff and that's hard right which is why i agree with the one percent is finished because you, ha- you can't go from one to 100%. You have to go one to Absolutely, two. Exactly. And, and the thing in my big nature is you have to deliver and you have to make credible steps. Working in an organization, you get to see yeah. different things. It's really hard to summarize the themes of an organization externally because you don't <coughs> understand because you're not every customer. So I think it's really important to... Do you mean we can generalize, we can make sweeping statements. However, the key part is how do you make important things work? And you have to make little steps every day to ultimately get to that future state. You're not going to make a huge leap to 100%. Definitely. I think you agree. You heard it here first, guys. Digital banking is only 1% finished. So thank you very much for, for our guest. Frankie, thanks for coming along. Thanks, guys. Alessandro, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you like the new format. Let us know what you think of the show by leaving a review on iTunes. We absolutely love reading those reviews, and they really help other people discover the show. To learn more about the team behind Fintech Insiders, visit our webpage at www.11fs.co.uk. That is the number 11, not spelled 11. Talk to you soon.